Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 20, which records for us Paul's amazing prayer for the Ephesian Christians. Just before we, we look at it in detail, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves who the Ephesians are, to remind ourselves of, of who this letter was written to. This church that Paul is writing to were a small church in the huge city of Ephesus, a city that was famous for worship of the pagan god Artemis. So in the middle of this uh, huge city, you had a temple that was dedicated to the worship of Artemis. And Robin used the illustration a couple of weeks ago of it being like uh, the castle in the middle of Edinburgh, uh, except instead of a castle, it was this massive Greco-Roman temple in which people from all over the Roman Empire would gather to this city to worship at this temple. And in this culture, people were really obsessed with the, with the supernatural and the, the spiritual realms. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, uh, you can read about how the Ephesian church was formed. It's really interesting to, to read about this young church. A lot of the people in, in the Ephesian church were people who were involved in the occult. Uh, and Acts 19 tells us that um, before they sort of met together, they gathered all their magic books uh, and burnt them. Uh, so it was, a, it was a slightly unusual church um, and a slightly uh, different church maybe to perhaps the church that we are used to here, but experiencing many of the, the same difficulties. They were a small church. They were on the fringes of society. They were so different to the surrounding culture. And they would have felt that smallness. They would have felt weak. They would have felt insignificant. And what Paul does here in this letter is he writes this letter to encourage them. He writes this letter to help them understand who, who they are in Christ and what the church is really like, this church that they are part of. They may feel small, but they are part of something huge. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's as if Paul is like pulling back the curtain on what the church is really like. He wants them to see how glorious it is, because the, the church of Jesus is kind of like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. Outwardly, it looks very plain and normal, but when you open the doors, you'll see this great, magnificent, cosmic working that is going on behind the scenes. So Paul is wanting this church to look beyond the mere outward and to comprehend what it is that they actually have in Jesus. And we saw last week in verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians 1 that, that Paul begins this letter by reminding them of who they are as Christians. We saw that this church is a, a community of people who in Christ have been given every spiritual blessing, chosen by God, adopted by God, redeemed by God, forgiven by God, united together as God's people and sealed with this Holy Spirit for all eternity. Magnificent chapter, magnificent words. That's what Paul says about who we are, who the church is. Now, what he is going to do this week is pray for what the church needs. Last week, we saw who we are as Christians. This week, we're going to see what we need as Christians. So let's read this great prayer. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Paul writes this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, let's pray before we look at this amazing passage of Scripture. Father, we need your help because we are dull in heart. We are blind so often to what we have in Jesus we are forgetful. Some of us here feel cold towards the gospel, even though we're Christians. Some of us here don't know the gospel. And so, Father, we pray the prayer of the Apostle Paul, that you would open the eyes of our heart. Help us to see Christ this morning. Help us to understand the great truths of this passage. Father, we pray for two things. Firstly, that we would understand what Paul's saying here. Secondly, we pray that our hearts would be so moved by it that we would be filled with such affection and joy for Christ and for what has been done to us in Christ. Lord, this morning we pray for a supernatural awakening, a divine light to shine into our hearts and show us the truths of the gospel. We cannot do this by ourselves. I cannot do this. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you as the spirit of wisdom and revelation would make known to us the great treasures of being in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen. Well, what is it that you need here this morning? What do we need as a church here at Chalmers? If you are struggling, uh, if you're struggling as a Christian, if you're feeling weak, if you're doubting, if you're wondering, is this right? Is this true? Is this real? If you, like the Ephesian church, just feel maybe like you're on the fringes of society and you feel quite small and weak and insignificant, if you're struggling with sin, if you're suffering, what do you need more than anything else to help you? Well, Paul's answer is simple in this prayer, simple yet very profound. What we need as the church, what we need more than anything else is to know God. That's what we need. It's the first point on your sheet. I've got a little uh, outline as to where we're going to help maybe help explain the logic of, of this prayer that is being said here. But you'll see that the first point, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians is that they would know God. So he writes in verse 15, having heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for the saints. So in other words, because I know you, Ephesian church, because I know that you are the, the real deal, you believe in Jesus, you love one another as signs of authentic Christianity. Because I know that, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, and this is what he asks in his prayers, that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So because of, of all that I've just said about who you are in Christ, and because I know that you're genuinely following him, I pray that you Ephesians would know God pray that that God himself would help you to know him better. Now, what's going on here? Because in one sense, the Ephesians must already know God. I mean, they're Christians. They follow him. Well, Paul's saying, Paul's prayer is that they would know him better. You see, this is the thing about being a Christian. Becoming a Christian is about knowing God. It is. It's about knowing what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. But that never, ever ends. You never just get this information and then that's you sorted. Growing as a Christian is about growing in your knowledge of God and His grace. That's why our small groups and that's why things like focus are so important because we are trying to to help you to know God better. Because God is is a a never-ending well of truth that the more you drink from, from, the more incredible He becomes and the deeper you want to go and the more you want to learn. What the Ephesians need, what we here at Chalmers need is for God to help us to know Him. It's the most important thing you can do. God is so utterly captivating and amazing that the more you understand Him, the more you'll understand life, the more you will understand yourself, and the more everything that is that's going on in your life just now, the more all that just gets put into the right perspective. When you know God, the great truths of verse 1 to 14 that we saw last week, you need to listen to that sermon. Those great truths are, are, are pushed right to the forefront of your mind. They become real for you. You really know what it means to be adopted as God's child. When you know God, you love God. When you go, know God, you, you love God's people. And it's important to see that what Paul means here, when, when Paul uses the term knowledge, or when the Bible uses that term, it's never just mere understanding. It's not just knowing about God, but it's knowledge in the Bible is, is a kind of intimate thing. It's about knowing Him personally. It, it's like understanding and, and experience. It's experiencing God's grace and his mercy. It's, it's not having God as some kind of abstract idea, but having him as someone that is real and personal. And the blessings that he gives us are tangibly real for us. Now think of it like this. This is an illustration from uh, an 18th century theologian called Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes. He preached a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light Imparted to the Heart of Men Shown to Be Both a Rational and Biblical Doctrine. Oh, it's a great sermon title. I love the Puritans because they have stuff like that. Um, it's much better than what do we need as Christians. But anyway, this is Edwards' illustration. He says, think of honey. And he states that there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet to actually tasting that it's sweet. So you can describe the sweetness of honey to someone. um, You can talk about it. I don't know how you would do that, but you can try and describe the sweetness of honey to a person who's never tasted honey. But the only way they will ever understand it, the only way they will know it, is if they taste it themselves. Or, says Edwards, there's a difference between hearing that something is beautiful and sensing that something is beautiful. 
So I can hear someone describe to me the beauty of Glencoe. And if you've never been there, you have to go there. I know it's beautiful. I've seen the pictures. I've heard people talk about it. Um, I don't doubt that. It is a beautiful place. But until I am actually standing in the valleys of Glencoe in one of those rare moments of sunshine, being overshadowed by these immense mountains and gazing out at this cacophony of colors, that's when I really know, that's when I sense that Glencoe is beautiful. And so says Jonathan Edwards, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. He's absolutely right. Knowing God is about having your minds enlightened and your hearts enraptured for who he is. That's what Paul is praying for this church that God wouldn't be a concept, but that he would be real, that the Christians in Ephesus would know him. He's not praying for anything new. There is no, there's no second blessing in the Bible. He's not praying that they would get some, something that they don't already have because of Ephesians 1 verse 3. They have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So you already have all this. You have God himself. And Paul's prayer is that we would be more aware of what it is that we already have. In Christ, we have a, a fountain of infinite goodness and joy. Uh, the more you know him, the, the greater he becomes in your life. We have an endless depth of knowledge to mine from that gets increasingly greater the more we delve. And if that's true, which it is, and I have to ask you and I have to ask myself, why are we so content to have a mere superficial knowledge of God? Why are we so content to have this mere superficial knowledge of God as if we've got him worked out? So are you working hard to know God each day? Are you really trying to know him? God's not holding back anything. He's there and he's not silent, as Francis Schaeffer said. He wants to be known. And if we don't do that, he will start to become a concept. He'll start to become an idea. And he'll drift further and further away from being of any significance to our lives. We've got to work hard at knowing God. How do we do that? We, we spend time in the Bible. That's where the spirit of wisdom and revelation speaks to us. But we've got to do as well what Paul does here in this passage. We get on our knees and we pray. Because this knowledge doesn't come from us. It's not something we just try and work out ourselves. It comes from God himself. So we, so we pray to God. We ask God, show me, help me understand, help me know who you really are. And we do, notice what Paul does. He doesn't just, he's not praying for himself though. Paul's praying for his church, for this church. So pray for me. I need to know God. I really do. Pray for Robin. Pray for the elders of Chalmers, pray for the people sitting right next to you. Pray that they would just know God better. That's what we need. Because if, like the Ephesian Christians, we are struggling, if we are feeling weak, maybe doubting, if we're struggling against all sorts of things, if we know God, then we will start to know Christ and the blessings that we have in him. You know, John Calvin, another old school theologian, he, used, he said this about prayer. He said, it's not for God's benefit that we pray, but for our benefit. It's great. 
And listen to this. Prayer is the means by which we dig up the treasures of God's promises to us. Prayer is the means by which we dig up the treasures of God's promises to us. I don't know if you've ever felt that sometimes when you're praying or at the prayer meeting, that the blessings of God seem more real. You've been spending time speaking to God about it. The more you pray to know God, the more that that dullness of your heart will be lifted and your eyes enlightened and captivated with Him. The more you will unearth the treasures of the promises that God has already given to us. And this is where Paul goes with his prayer now. So that's the big overarching thing in his prayer. You've got to know God. And when you know God, you'll know the blessings that he gives. What are those blessings? Three things you'll see in the prayer. Firstly, Paul wants the Ephesians to know God so that they will know the hope that God has called them to. See that in verse 18. The more you know God, the more you will know hope. This church needs to be aware of what it is. What a great hope that they have. It's not something, hope in the Bible is never something that's like uncertain or it's something that may happen. Biblical hope is always defined as a future absolute certainty that you have. And he's saying, look, as Christians, you, you've got hope that, that is guaranteed. A hope that, that God himself has called you to. We didn't get this hope by earning it. God has called us to us. What is that hope? It's the hope of being adopted as God's child. It's the hope of salvation. Look, why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus came to earth to die on the cross, and he came to remove the punishment that our sins deserved, but that wasn't the end. He didn't just come to give us a blank slate. That was a means to an end. The end itself is adoption, is being made God's children. That is what our hope is, that we are God's children. That is what God has called us to. Just look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. We looked at from last week. Even as he chose us, that is God, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose of his will. Nothing can change that hope. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. Our hope is not dependent upon my meager will, but our hope's dependent upon God's will. God's will can't be thwarted. My commitment to him is wavers. But here in Ephesians, I'm seeing he chose me before the foundation of the world. It's incredible. The doctrine of predestination is one of the most wonderful doctrines in the Bible. He chose me before the foundations of the world. It's all Christ, and that is why our hope is guaranteed. It's our anchor. That is our our hope amidst life's certainties. That's what's going to help you to keep going in life. That's what will encourage and empower you. A hope that death itself does not destroy. In fact, death will be used to bring it to fruition. And we're so blind to it. So dull to it. And that's why Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see that great truth. That with our hearts we would be enraptured with the knowledge of God. So that that hope becomes real to us. Secondly, Paul wants the Ephesians to know God so that they will know the riches of being God's inheritance. Now look at the second half of verse 18. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, a bet like me, you probably misread that on the first reading. You're probably thinking that's talking about the same thing, about our future hope. Notice the wording. Notice the wording here. Paul isn't talking about what our inheritance will be. Rather, he's talking about God's inheritance. See that? His inheritance. What is what is it that God needs? What is it that God has inherited, the great God and King of all time? Well, look around you. It's the church. That's what God's inheritance is. That's what God has inherited. It's God's new humanity, as Paul will call it later in Ephesians. People from all sorts of different backgrounds, united as one in Christ. And he's saying, I want you to know the riches that you have, that, that you in Ephesus, or, or you here in Chalmers, you messed up bunch of sinners. It's exactly what we are, despite how it may look on the outside. I want you sinful people to know that you are God's prized inheritance. The end of the book of Jude, there's that wonderful benediction that states that we as the church are the ones that Jesus will present before God as holy and blameless. And how will he do it? He will do it with great joy. The more you know God, the more you, know God, the more you will marvel at the immense worth that he has placed upon you in the church, the immense worth of those who deserve nothing but his judgment. It's amazing. I was, uh, I was reading a book on Ephesians by a guy called Richard Cokin. It's a great book. It's, it's really worth getting, actually, if you want to, to get into Ephesians more. Uh, but he used this illustration. He talks about his children. Uh, so a, a lot of you here won't have children, but imagine that you've got children. Uh, and imagine your children are at uh, that fateful age of dating, and they bring their girlfriend or their boyfriend home, and depending on what they were like, or depending upon how harsh you want to be, uh, over time you would accept them, and eventually they may come into the family. But if they were abusive, if they were dismissive, if they were violent towards your child, you would never accept them. You would never let them into your house. But don't you see? Don't you realize that without Christ, that's exactly what we were like towards God? Ephesians 2 tells us that by our nature, we were objects of his wrath. We were God's enemies. What was it that, that held Jesus to the cross? Why did Jesus die? Why was the Son of God crucified? Because of you and me, because of our sin. But despite who we are, God, through Jesus, has chosen to remove all that sin that offends him and hurts him so deeply, that sin that killed his son, and to make us his inheritance. He's chosen to remove our sins so we can be called saints. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You're a saint. So if your name's Bob, and you work in a bakery, and you follow Jesus, you are Saint Bob the patron saint of the buns. You are a saint because of what Christ has done. When we know God's grace, when we know who he is, we will know that great truth. Thirdly and finally then, this is kind of the big thing, I guess. The struggling small Ephesian church needs to know God so that they will know the power that God is working in them. 
you know, if we are part of the church of Jesus, if you call yourself Christian, if you follow Jesus, even if you feel far from him, even if you're struggling to follow him, there is a power at work in you that is unlike anything else in this world. Do you believe that? When you feel weak and marginalized, when you feel on the edges of society, there is this great power at work within you. There is. You won't feel that. This power is not like some kind of uh, spiritual spinach. It's not something that kind of raises your blood sugar and gets the, the heart pumping. It's far greater than that. Look at the word that Paul uses in verse 19 to try and convey this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? Now, in Greek, those words, I I can say this safely because we don't have Greek scholars like we did in the first service. That word immeasurable is the word hyperbalon, where we get the word hyperbole. The word greatness is the word megathos, get the word mega. And the word for power is dunamos, we get the word dynamite. So Paul's saying that you have the hyper-mega-dynamite of God working in you right now. It's, it's over-the-top language. It's deliberately over-the-top, using the limitations of language. He is trying to get us to get our heads around this mighty power that is at work within us. Now, what does it look like? Because it doesn't feel so often like there's a great power at work within us. And I think the Ephesians probably might have doubted that there was any power in their little tiny church in comparison to the great temple of Artemis in their city. And this is why I think Paul goes on to elaborate what this power is like. And it's all tied into our union with Jesus that happens when we come to follow him. And it boils down to three things. Firstly, it's the power of Jesus' resurrection. The power at work in us is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's what he says in verse 20. That power that brought Jesus back to life. That power that that ended the finality of death itself, that's at work within us. And that is evident in your life by the very fact that you are a Christian. Paul's going to elaborate on this next week when we look at Ephesians 2. But being a Christian is not about adopting an idea. It's not about taking on some sort of philosophical worldview. Being a Christian is about being made completely new. Before we followed Jesus, we, we had no desire for him. The natural man has no desire for God at all. We were, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It's Ephesians 2.4. On our own, we were dead to God. We had no care for him. But God intervened and called us to Christ. And so if you have a desire for Christ and a desire to fight off sin, knowing that you fail so often, you are a walking miracle. You have a, a power in you that has changed your heart. The power of Christ's resurrection. And it means that when we do die, death will not be our end because the power of the resurrection is at work within us. Secondly, it's the power of Jesus' authority. Verse 21 Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, when Paul talks about powers and dominions, that's kind of his way of talking about um, Satan in the demonic realm. Uh, Very prevalent for the Ephesian Christians. 
Remember, that's what a lot of them were, were entangled in. That's probably what a lot of them were afraid of. Paul's saying, you don't need to worry about that because you're united to the great king whose power exceeds and is far above any other power and authority. The devil and his angels, they will assault the church of Christ. They will, which is why at the very end of this letter, Paul's got this famous passage about wearing the armor of God. They will throw our sins in our face and make us feel that God doesn't love us. But the power of Jesus is greater than any of them. The authority of Jesus is over all of them. Listen to these words of Jesus in John 10, 28. I give my church eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see if you're a Christian and you're still going as a Christian, it's not because you're great. It's because of Jesus' power. He helps us. He holds us. He sustains us. We will muck up. We will make mistakes. But he will carry us home until we're at last with him. The one whose name is above every name. Thirdly, finally, we have the power of Jesus' fullness. It's confusing, this, these last two verses. Verse 23 especially is a very confusing verse. Here's what I think he is saying. Paul's saying that this great king, King Jesus, is so linked to his church that his power can never leave it. So he is the church's head, and we here are his body. We are, we are tied together with Christ. And that means that right now we have the fullness of Jesus. So the king of the universe, the God of all, is in us by his fullness. He is the be-all and the end-all, and Jesus does not hold anything back from his church. We're connected to him. So we have the power of Jesus' resurrection, the power of Jesus' authority, and the power of Jesus' fullness. That's at work right now, and you know we will feel weak, we will feel distant, but Paul's peeling back the curtain He's opening the door of the TARDIS to get us to see what is really going on in our lives as Christians and in the church of Christ. Because the devil will tempt you to make you feel that this is weak. This is insignificant. It reminds me of a bit in C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, that I absolutely love. It's when the senior devil, Screwtape, is trying to get a junior devil to discourage a guy who's just become a Christian. And he tells him to get him to go to church and to look merely at the outward church. So look at the, the cold brick walls. Look at the, the, the greengrocer from down the street. Look at the, the old words to these hymns you don't understand. And get him to see that that's all the church is. But don't get him to see the church as we see her. Spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. Paul's saying, that's what the church is. The power of Christ working within them. So know God so that you can really know what is going on behind the scenes of the church. Now let's take a step back from this prayer. We're, we're finished. But take a step back from that whole prayer. You, you may need to read it a few times. I had to read it a lot this week to try and understand it. And you need to pick yourself up off the ground when you do understand it because it's so breathtaking. These great truths about being part of Christ's church, they come to us the more that we know God, the more that we taste the sweetness of his gospel, the more that we stand in the valley and experience the beauty of his grace. 
And if you don't know God, now's the time. Turn to him now. God's not holding back. As Jim Packer says, you're cruel to yourself if you ignore the one who made you and the one who made this universe. We need him. We need him. And as Christians, we need him. We need to mine the great depths of this knowledge. You need this more than sorting out your financial problems. You need this more than a fix to your health. You need this more than a solution to your relationships. It's not that these things uh, are... It's not that those things are unimportant. They're really important, and we need to work at sorting them. It's just that this is of infinite importance. Knowing God won't remove life's problems, but it does give perspective to life's problems. And the more you know him, the more you'll see what the immeasurable greatness is of his power at work within us. So pray then for this, charmers. Pray. Make this your prayer this week for one another. Make your, this your prayer for the rest of your lives, that we as a church would know this great God. Let's do that now. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we want to know you. We're sorry for being so complacent in knowledge of you. Sorry for thinking that somehow we really understand the depths of the gospel, that we really understand what it means to be in Christ. Lord, we will never fully comprehend that greatness and for all eternity we will be mining the depths of that knowledge. We pray that you would break through our hard, cold hearts, that you would give us a sense of who you are, an awareness of the beauty of holiness and the the blessings that we have in Christ. Help us to daily unearth these great treasures through prayer. Help us to pray for each other. Help us, Lord, to understand and to know your great power so that we can know our hope, so that we can know the riches of being your inheritance, so that we can know the reality of this power that is at work within us. Help us, Lord, this week. Pray that our hearts would be moved for Jesus. And that through this knowledge, we would seek to fight off sin all the more. Seek to love your people all the more. And seek to glorify your name in all that we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and the head of our church. Amen.